Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And uh, we are excited, as church nerds can be, for a brand new series here uh, in this late summer time. Buckle up, church nerds. This is going to be a series all about church polity. Um, After spending several weeks talking about the ways we unwind, um, we felt it would be helpful for us or maybe important for us to talk about... um, why Christian groups exist in so many different ways and factions and things like that. You know, um, in the community where I live, I can walk down the street and find a whole bunch of different churches that um, all have the same steeple with the same cross on top and all are insistent that they worship the same Jesus and read from the same Bible. But man, we got a whole bunch of different traditions. And for church folks, that could be confusing, even more so for folks who know zero about Christianity and wonder why are there three churches side by side who all insist they worship the one true God or all confess Jesus as Lord? And in a time like uh, right now here in uh, the summer of 2022, a lot of American church bodies and denominations, as well as other international ones, have been having their big multi every multi year uh conference or, or assembly or things like that, that might pick up a little press, even if um, most most folks in wider culture don't know what those are. are. So we thought it might be worth examining, okay, how, what's, what's, what's the story behind how we've ended up with a whole bunch of different Christian denominations? And to be honest, to ask the question, why bother with it? Because here we are, three pastors who are a part of denominational churches. Each one of us are pastors who are committed. Yep, we're pro-Jesus and we're pro-Jesus people. And we've chosen to be a part of that in groups that are bigger than just our local body on Sunday mornings. There's clearly the option in this day and age of saying, you know, I don't need any other structure. It's just going to be me and my handful of people on a Sunday sitting in the pews. I don't need anybody else. So part of what we're going to be looking at is why bother with denominations? Um, What's the good and what's the the rotten of of having those kind of structures? And what are the challenges? Um, But that's a lot of ground for us to cover. And maybe we should first open up with where are we just going to start the conversation today? So today we're going to start with history. Um, Because... The Christian church for its entirety of its existence has been made up of people and people like to get together and do things. And then eventually someone angers somebody else and then they stop getting together to do things. But then the human drive is to get together with other people and do things. So then they form their own again, new groups and continue to do things until because it's made up of people somebody else gets angry and they again split up the group and there's a messy divorce. So we're going to take a look at all of the ways Christians have got together, do things until somebody gets angry and then they break up. And your, your way of phrasing it, like I get, there's a little bit tongue in cheek there, but I think there's something helpful and just deeply human about acknowledging this thing called church is a, group of human beings. And so for whatever other things we want to say about the presence of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of God and all that kind of thing, if you get a group of human beings together, there are going to be times we don't agree. And one of the real challenges in any kind of human community is to decide what are the things that we can live together and not agree on? And what are the things that 
we don't agree on this and this is so important that I don't have to kill you, but we can't partner together because we are on different wavelengths on something that is so important. We, we for all the other things we do have in common, we can't uh, live and work together side by side. Right. And I think that this is a like throughout the Christian church, this has been an issue. It's not like we've ever completely been completely in harmony and unity ever in the Christian church, the big C Christian church, the whole, you know, all of us together. Um, even when the New Testament was being written, it was a struggle. In First Corinthians, Paul right is writing to the Corinthians and you know, is encouraging them to be in unity under Christ and to not identify themselves as, you know, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, you know, other apostles, um, you know, I belong to whomever. No, Paul wanted the Christian church to say, I belong to Christ. Um, And like, that was Part, a big part of Paul's ministry was trying to unify all of these small churches throughout the Mediterranean, you know, all those people who say that they follow Christ to unify them together. And, you know, even then, even in the first century, even in the second century, they had a hard time yeah. doing that. Yeah. And so this me- isn't a new problem. Maybe you've also hit on something that also seems to be a recurring challenge, uh, a tactic that Christians keep falling back into over the last 2000 years is to try and one up all that factionalism. Because in in first Corinthians, when Paul's naming off, you know, there's a group that says, I belong to Paul and I belong to Apollos. And there's another group that says, oh, we belong to Christ as though the others don't like that. It's really easy to say, yeah, you all have faction, but I don't. It's just me and Jesus. I've got it right. I must be with Jesus when that's really just sort of a backhanded way of saying, I I think you're all going to burn in hell <laughs> um, of saying that all the other factions are wrong um, and not be able to see your own, uh, you know, factionalism that, you know, you might not want to acknowledge, but yeah, you got it too. Um, and the, the, it, we've been doing that not only the first generation of Christians around those kind of names, you read the book of Acts and the early church was really wrestling with things like, do Gentiles get included as Gentiles, right? And uh, for a while, it was sort of congregationally decided. You know, you've got this congregation where there's a bunch of Gentiles and Paul's like, yeah, this is totally cool. And then you've got other congregations that were closer to, say, Judea or Jerusalem, where there weren't any non-Jewish people around. That It was sort of a non-issue. Well, we don't have to worry about including them. And it was sort of this abstract, there are those people over there, and eventually it comes to a head in Acts chapter 15, and even once there's a big decision, we're all going to decide, we're going to include Gentiles now, just tell them not to eat anything that's been strangled, which is a weird, interesting sort of caveat, but okay, Uh, Gentiles are included. Even after that, the church still wrestles with living into, we all said we were going to agree and live by this, but... There were places where Paul later on has to confront uh, Simon Peter himself and say things like in one of his letters, look, I had to talk with with Simon Peter about like, we all were in agreement. We said Gentiles are included and he still wasn't eating with them or he was only eating with them when there weren't other Jewish people around. Um, That It's hard to decide what are the issues that are so important. We got to have a uniform agreement on. And then what do you do if you didn't like the way the decision went? If you're Simon Peter, who's like, well, I'm not really sure I really like all these Gentiles. How do you, how do you live with that together? So yeah, we've been struggling with this from generation one. That's, that's certainly 
maybe eye-opening or, or important for us to remember. Now, maybe it's fair to say, too, that in that, those early generations, while you have those kind of factions, um, we don't have evidence that you had different institutions that broke out of that, so that we didn't quite have, like, that you, you didn't end up with the Apollos group starting their own building down the road and then the Cephas built and like eventually after they get Paul's letter, you're right, we're being jerks to each other. Somehow we all still belong to Jesus. And yet here we are 2000 years later living with Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans and Free Church and Assemblies of God and Church of God and Church of God prophecy. I mean, there's a long, long list. Um, how, how do we get from that first generation to where we are today? What are other steps along the way? So I would say for quite a long time, Christians were fairly unified, like they didn't have too many like splits, big splits, um, because, you know, big long while they were persecuted and underground. That's a great unifier right there right. is everybody's in the same boat. We're all being hunted by the empire, um, you know, so that happened for quite a while. And then um, Constantine became emperor and made Christianity the official religion and so then everybody just kind of followed and did what the emperor said to do um and then for a while there were um the occasional big councils where all of the major religious teachers and you know big deals in christianity would come together and discuss things sometimes right. civilly sometimes there were some punches thrown but <laughs> you know they would discuss and kind of decide on like this is what we all agree on this mm -hmm. is what we all believe and then like a new question would come up of like hey how does this work was this jesus guy god or right. was jesus the son of god or was jesus just a teacher like what what's what's going on here and then they would get together again and discuss it and figure it out and like say okay this is the official teaching and then all of these other things that disagree with this official teaching that we all agreed on um that's all heresy now yeah we don't we don't follow that like if you believe this you're not actually a christian anymore I think that's a really important point you raised there, because it, to, to pretend that for the first several centuries, nobody disagreed about anything is a little bit of a misnomer. It's they had a they had a process for how you deal with disagreement. And the there was an elegance, but also a cost to deciding things with those kind of councils that the, those those first several centuries of councils are often called the ecumenical councils, because it was a time when you could get representatives from the entire Christian church across as it was scattered across the ancient world together and they would decide but at the end of it whatever things were here's the deal breakers here's the things we all got to be on the same page about and we all got to affirm this the anybody who wasn't on that same wavelength they didn't say go start your own group it's okay but they, nope sorry this is out of bounds this is this is what we teach this is what we don't we all got to be in agreement here and on the things that weren't decided as part of a uh, statement or a creed or whatever that came out of that there was a certain amount of freedom then so like you know out of the the council of nicaea there's all this uh, energy and time and language spent on 
Jesus being the son of God, who is of one being with the father and God of God, light from light, but not a word spent on what color is Jesus hair. So you're free to imagine whatever color hair Jesus had, but there are some things that are, these are the non-negotiable points. Other things we are okay to live with variety on. Um, and sometimes it wasn't just doctrine. Sometimes it, like, it was out in Nicaea that they agreed on a church calendar. How We should probably all celebrate the resurrection of Jesus at the same time. Let's, let's pick a day. How are we going to calculate that every year? Um, and so they were those kind of things that came out of it um and for a while like you say sarah that that held and worked decently even if it came at the cost of now you've identified a whole group of people who yesterday weren't heretics but today after the council met now you're heretics uh, and what do you do with them but um it also raised the question of who's allowed to call one of them councils together you know um uh and that presents another set of uh, factionalism, right? So in the first several centuries, as you've got just a bunch of people uh, and their local leaders of their, their congregation, the bigger congregations in bigger cities would have maybe more prominent leaders or whatever, or could trace their uh, teaching back to somebody who would learn from someone who was an apostle, that kind of thing. Uh, but there's no set institutional who's in charge of the whole deal. And as you get different cities that were really sort of centers of the empire, you got in the east, you got Constantinople, which um, uh, then gets renamed Byzantium. Uh, and then um, you've got um, uh, uh, Rome sort of emerging in the Western part of the empire. And because Rome sort of quickly took on this legacy of, well, we go back all the way to St. Peter and Paul because they had been here, they sort of claim a primacy. And eventually the bishops of Rome would be, well, we're the ones who get to decide when there's an issue so important that we got to call a council about it. And others who would say things like, well, are you really the only ones who can call a council? And wait, what if you're calling a council over something we don't think is a big deal? Um, eventually you end up with different sort of centers of power who aren't so much upset about a particular theological issue as who has the power to decide what is the theological issue that we can fight over or that we need to make a decision over. Yeah, and I would say that that was the first big actual split or breakup or like we're no longer going to play nicely with each other was when Rome and um, Constantinople became their own centers of power. And they didn't like sharing power with each other. So in 1054, the Great Schism happened where uh, Christianity became split into the Roman Catholic uh, Church, which was based in Rome, and then the Eastern Orthodox Church, which, which was based in the then city of Constantinople. And there are other groups that might be a part of the story, but don't have as flashy or exciting a uh, break point. Like there's been a whole tradition called the Coptic Church, which uh, sort of grew out of Egypt. And when that was a Christian center in Alexandria, but that set, that seems to have been less a, a, a shoot and match kind of thing. But yeah, the Great Schism of, you know, we've been doing church for a thousand years and there'd been almost like a cold war between those centers of power in the we the east and the west of each one sort of claiming well i've got the authority to call a council if i want to and we can settle the things we want to um and eventually it's just coming to a head of we we can't agree on how we decide what issues are important enough to have a council and split over um uh so it, in one way it's kind of sad that it's not like there was some clear gospel issue that was the thing that sort of launched this it was more a question of a power struggle of uh who has the ability to uh, almost to me like in 21st century america 
where there are questions of what cases will the Supreme Court take up or not and who decides what's worthy of a decision, right? So like even when the court takes up a, a case that's controversial, uh, you know, some people will be happy or not happy with how a decision comes out, but sometimes they, they anger everybody when they say, well, we're not going to take this particular case or who has the ability to decide what things are going to be considered. That can provoke an awful lot of... of um, uh, heat rather than light. Um, and the church has been living with that as well. So as I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking back on my church history, it seems like when we started putting people in power over other people in the church, you know, when it was, when it was no longer just like a house church, um, where you might have one leader or a handful of leaders that were all on the same level, like we start putting in bishops and, and those levels of power, is when all this kind of starts happening where we start seeing schisms and fractures in the church. And it makes me wonder like if we wouldn't like, where did we come up with this idea of pastors and bishops and, yeah. and eventually the Pope right. um, and the Roman Catholic you know, church, where did we come up with that hierarchy that then caused this massive split to the great schism, as we yeah. call it, yeah. in 1054? I think it's such a good question because there are times when I feel like I can remember having this conversation with classmates in seminary about, well, wait, maybe we made a mistake when the church became an institution. We should have just been this new movement yeah. of followers of Jesus. And yet I can remember, I think, I think a professor might've said that anytime you need an organization to live beyond the first generation, it becomes to some degree an institute there. You have to have people who decide what things are worth carrying on. And whether you have a structure with one person in charge or a whole council of people in charge or whatever, once you say, here's how we're going to make decisions moving forward, you just made yourself an institution, baby, for good and for ill. Mm -hmm. um, and that to some degree, we were if, if we were going to be more than just a one generation group of people who met Jesus and then when they'd all, all the people who knew Jesus died, it was done. There was going to be have, have to be some kind of mechanism for how do we pass along the things that are essential and who gets to decide what things are essential. And once you got past that first generation of apostles who actually knew Jesus and could say things like, he, I remember, he told us this is important, this isn't, then you're left with who gets to decide. And so asking these questions, I think, is unavoidable. The particular choices that got made in Christian history maybe were avoidable. And I think that's an important clarifying thing, that one way or another, there were going to have to be some kind of people who were leaders of Christian communities, but it didn't have to become so rigid or so focused on who has the power and the authority. And, and again, if there hadn't been such a, a priority on we all have to be in lockstep on certain issues, the other people are heretics, Maybe they could have lived with a certain kind of pluralism for a lot longer. Maybe there could have been a, well, here in Rome, this is how we do things. And the folks over there in Ephesus or Constantinople or whatever, you do things your way and that's okay. And we don't all have to agree, but that would have been a really, really different story. But it still would have been somebody making decisions about how, how, we, how we live together, how, how we do Jesus stuff together. It just, I find it interesting because like the, the, the systems that, you all live under as Lutheran pastors. I live under as a Methodist that the Catholic church has lived under for, you know, 2000 years. Um, they're not scriptural necessarily, right. Right. you know, and yeah, and I, and I get it. We have to, for it to live past for the Jesus movement to live past the first generation has to become institutionalized. I get that as much as I get frustrated with the institutional church yeah. on a, 
at least weekly basis, <laughs> if not daily, sometimes I get that that had to happen, but I'm like, could we not have figured out a better way yeah, to do yeah. this? Well, in, in so many ways, though, I'm glad that the institution isn't biblical because I feel like if the rules and polity was in the Bible, then we would be married to it. And like, yeah. we, couldn't, we wouldn't be able to escape it even when it stops working. And I think that any polity that we create, any institution that we create, because we're human, is going to eventually fail. It's going to eventually stop working for our context because our context changes. And so by not having it in the Bible, having it not written in stone, we can reform it. We can change it. We can, it becomes more of a living thing that can grow and adapt with us. And so like, I am not opposed to reformation. Um, There are a lot of uh, church scholars who think that by necessity, the church has gone through pretty major reformations every 500 years or so. Yeah. Um, And the Great Schism was one of them. Yeah. That in the turn of the century, you know, 1054, we had the Great Schism. And that became a necessary change because the church had gotten so big, it was becoming more and more difficult for the big leaders to get together and to agree on mm-hmm. things. Um, and it again happened 500 years later with the with Martin Luther and Protestantism saying, hey, the Roman Catholic Church, it's not working anymore. They've gotten you know, too power hungry. They're not actually in tune with the people and with um they're not you know they're abusing you know the authority that they've been given and again reformation happened and so those church scholars are now saying it's been 500 years since martin luther (laughs) we're once again in a great time of reformation and um but they weren't really sure because they've been having these conversations now for 30, 40 years of like the next <laughs> right. big reformation is going to happen mm-hmm. soon. We don't know why or what it's going to look like, but it's probably going to be necessary. And now here we are seeing this great change in technology and way we're changing the ways that we interact with each other and do church. And, um, you know, again, I think we're in this midst of a big change but it's because of a lot of different things and reasons, but we're not really sure what the church is changing into Mm -hmm. just that it probably does need to change now. It's, I think it's worth noting too, that uh, at the time of, of uh, Luther's reformation in that other earlier great yard sale of the church in 1500 um, uh, that Luther himself, and we've talked about this before, doesn't see himself as I want to start a new denomination or start a splinter but to call for reform within that body and knew that he was you know as someone who was a part of the roman catholic church wasn't really privy to i want to make reforms to the eastern orthodox church he didn't have roots or connections or or uh boots on the ground to talk about what changes might or might not need to happen there um and that he he certainly could have a, a parallel history could have been hey here's some things that we should collectively maybe address and work on that i think it's also important to remember that in luther's movement uh, what kicks things off is propositions for discussion, not here's my list of things you all need to agree with me on, but 
here, mm-hmm. here are points that I think we better have some serious conversation on and come to some clarity on because it sure seems like we've gone astray here. And that even that suggests conversation rather than it, it's not that Luther saw himself as I want to be the new Pope. The problem is you all have the wrong Pope. But we should, you know, you should make me make all the decisions. But even though he could be stubborn and hard headed sometimes, he doesn't frame things that way as you all are wrong. I'm the only one who's right. But wait a second here. Let's talk together and go back to the scriptures about what we're all supposed to be here. Um, and I can remember too, we, the three of us all used to know a, a colleague, now of blessed memory, uh, uh, Pastor uh, Dave Wassman, who used to ask the question, could there have been a, a parallel timeline where Lutheranism became a movement within the Catholic Church, like the Jesuits or the Dominicans or the Franciscans or the Benedictines, and to notice that within Catholicism, and this is something that Protestants really aren't always good at admitting, Catholicism has figured out ways to have diversity of tradition, even within that big umbrella. Now, again, there's a lot of similarity across those different groups. And you might say, well, they're all still pretty Catholic. Duh. Yeah, that, that's what we're talking about here. But that they found ways to have different emphases and traditions and different things that are important and maybe different focal points. And um, almost like you might say that there's a a strong difference between Northern Italian cuisine and Southern Italian cuisine and Mediterranean food. There, yeah, there's, there's some things in common, but yeah, there really are differences between, uh, you know, uh, Florence versus uh, Venice versus Rome or things like that. And to see, it doesn't always have to be either one person is the heretic and the other is Orthodox and we burn the ones who are heretics or violent schism. There are other models we have in our own church history of finding ways to live together in we don't all agree on some things. We're okay to be under this broad umbrella. Um, and maybe it's it's a, a sad consequence of Luther's Reformation that once he's excommunicated and his movement gathers steam, and again, you're left with when, when a movement wants to survive a generation, it has to become an institution. You end up with parallel church structures and you've got in 16th century Germany, people doing things the old Catholic way, the, the, the Roman Catholic way. And then you've got Lutheran people who are studying how to be Lutheran um, without Luther anymore, because after he's he's gone, how do we continue on? And now you've got parallel structures, competing leaders, competing bishops, competing you know creed documents and confessions and things like that. Um, that maybe it didn't have to happen that way, but that explains at least how it did. And once that starts to happen, as, as you noted, Sarah, earlier on, other groups sort of take the cue of, well, Luther and his movement broke away and started their own thing. And then finding here's other things or reasons that we find valid for us to break away from. So you end up with a 16th century reformation in Switzerland that becomes Calvinism and the reform tradition. And that then migrates to the Scottish Isles and you end up with uh, what we now call Presbyterianism and and, uh, groups that grow out of that. You end up with Wesley and you end up with, before that, Anglicanism, which is, again, a break off eventually of the 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 roman catholic church and at one point was fighting against those heretical lutherans um for their schism and their ways of leaving Luther, you know, leaving the roman catholic church and then when it becomes convenient deciding no we need to break away separately um and have a state church that is headed by the king of england and what a generation a century later you get someone like a wesley who says no we need to be reformed within that fast forward 500 years and at least maybe it makes sense how we end up with on any given street corner in, in a, any town in any given place, a whole bunch of different Christian communities all saying we are Christian, but finding a bunch of different ways to do it, sometimes playing well with others and sometimes saying, no, the church next door, they're all going to hell. I mean, especially if they're right next door, because that's often a church that 
had, you know, a single congregation who had such infighting that they decided to break away. Yeah. And they just divided the property and another church building sprung up next to the first one. And they might have the same denomination name on them, but they are two different congregations because they can't agree on whatever issue they were having, whether that was theological or just personal or uh, political, like whatever the topic was, they couldn't agree on it so much that they couldn't even worship in the same building together. It's interesting to me too, the way you frame that, that sometimes the things that we split over uh, are within the hindsight of history, you can go, man, that was because that was a political hot button issue at the time, not really a theological crisis, but then how those things get dressed up as theological crises. Like I think about the story, um, and I'm going to try and be gracious here because this is not my tradition, but the, the history of the Southern Baptist Convention as a body that formed and broke away from other Baptist groups because they wanted to defend the institution of slavery. And in the mm, first half of the 1800s, you had Baptists of different opinions in America about uh, whether slavery was acceptable or not, and how conveniently that in states that held a lot of slaves, they have the theological conviction that this was okay, and they would have made the case. We read our Bibles and look, there's plenty of slavery, so it must be okay, and it is not only a permissible thing, it is a good thing, this is how God has designed the world to be, and they find theological arguments for what is a political issue of the day and build a structure around that. Um, And then you have others who take that political issue of the day and say, no, the way we read the scripture says, this is probably not okay. In fact, God's grand vision or design is for us all to be treated equally and not to be enslaving one another. And you get a split. Um, But interesting how both sides in those years of the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention took what was a hot button issue and now have made it uh, something that uh, that's a theological issue. And I'm not saying that's wrong to do. Sometimes it's got to be, here's the question we're all wrestling with. How does our interpretation of scripture uh, you know, get, lead us to an answer? But it is interesting how different that is to me than the very, very clearly theological questions of those early ecumenical councils, right? Is Jesus God or just like uh, God's vice president? That's a, that's a pretty clearly theological kind of a question. Um, and interesting to me how we found things that are maybe hot button issues of the day and turn them into this is a, this got to be a deal breaker issue for us. Um, and we again, we've been doing that for centuries to it, even in American history, if if Southern Baptist story is is uh, any indication. And what's interesting with the Southern Baptist is my tradition did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Methodist Episcopal Church, you had a Methodist Episcopal North and Methodist Episcopal South. Wow, try saying that three times fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the Southern Baptists, like they still exist as Southern Baptists. Right. There is no longer a Methodist Episcopal South Church. Mm-hmm. They, they came back together eventually mm-hmm. and reformed. Now, the um, African Methodist um, Episcopal Church and the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Episcopal Church were some split offs because of that. Right. And they are still their own denominations, but like, you know, the Methodist Episcopals eventually were able to come back together after their split. Um, and then join another church to make, but that's down the road. We'll talk yeah, yeah. But, and so like, it's again, a helpful point of sometimes 
denominational groups tell their stories in terms of we hold on to the one truth in our existences because we're the ones holding on to the truth. And sometimes, no, it's, it's messier and involved the messiness of history of it was slavery in this issue. Or like, as you point out in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, there came a point where uh, a white dominated congregation wouldn't let uh, a African-American pastor lead. And mm -hmm. so their response was, well, we're still want to be followers of Jesus. We'll start our own over here. Yep. And that's less about, that they disagreed on questions of polity or uh, whether their hearts should be strangely warmed, but it was a, it was a race question. And because they couldn't find ways to see, uh, see through that, you end up with different denominations that again, over enough time now have to be separate institutions from one another. In a lot of ways, all this conversation reminds me of a, a chapter in the, the story of Israel in, in what we call the Old Testament that doesn't often get a lot of press, but I think may be instructive for us. And that you get a split in the national body of Israel after King Solomon. And for centuries, you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And depending on which prophets or voices you read in the Old Testament, you might take that as, well, the North was always bad. They broke away because they were ungodly and they were awful and they didn't know except the one true king. And then you also have prophets who were sent by God only to the North who said, yep, you broke away, but God still has a message for you. And the message wasn't always just get back together with the South, but you need to be, here's God's message for you right here and right now where you are. Um, and that's an uncomfortable tension because the prophets also envision a day when one day all of them will be reunited and they'll all be part of God's new grand messianic kingdom or something like that. Um, they all different ways of talking about it. But there's also a tension for right now we live in division and we can't all get along. And our hope isn't that that will last forever, but we're convinced that the, the differences or the things that set us apart are things we can't resolve right now. So we have to live in that difference. And that's a difficult tension when it is so, it is so tempting to want to just force, nope, y'all have to get, a, get along and you have to do what I say because I'm the right one. When the person on the other side, no, I'd like us all to agree because I'm the right one. And how do we live when we can't agree and even decide what are the things that are so big a deal we, we have to agree on? Maybe one other thing that we should name um, and I, I will say I've seen this not only in the Lutheran tradition from which I've grown up in, but in other traditions I've had exposure to, uh, all, all Protestant. Um, but when you get a group that breaks away, uh, and you know, the, the Lutheran Reformation, the Reformed tradition, things like that, are ones that, I think, to be honest, are ones that broke away from something. Um, it becomes easy in hindsight to say, and nobody ever had it right until us. Like, I, I again, I'll try to be charitable mm -hmm. here, but I went to a... Um, Presbyterian affiliated undergraduate institution. And sometimes the conversation among professors who came out of the reformed tradition, who were so fiercely reformed, were like, we're not sure if anybody before 1600 was saved. I mean, like they were really like, yeah, because pretty quickly they started believing in works righteousness and they weren't saved because the true distillation of the gospel hadn't come along. And you'd get that kind of conversation of for a long time, there were just no real Christians until our movement came along. Um, and they would never quite say it quite that loudly, but it was like just under the surface of like almost to say, yeah, we're not sure if anybody was saved until our movement came along. Um, and man, that's a really, really, it's tempting because it sure solves a lot of questions about, well, how do we come to be, well, we're the ones who have the truth and everybody else is wrong. But that seems like a really, really dangerous move to make, but one that is increasingly easy once you've started breaking things off and saying it's okay for us to break off for whatever reason we want, it, it's really tempting to say everybody else who's come before us were wrong. Well, it maybe wasn't like, like you said with your reformed professors, 
maybe it wasn't spoken out loud quite as clearly, but wasn't it the belief for a long time of the Catholic Church that those that broke away from them were not real Christians? You know, that Lutherans were not real Christians? That anybody right. Broke... Yeah, so it's not just the, the groups that break away from... Right. Previous groups might say, well, now we have the truth, but like. Right. Well, and I, I mean, I, that's, a, that's a solid point. The, the thing that, that frustrates me in particular about the Protestant side of that argument is at least if you're in the body that's, that has continuity, you can make the case of we're the group that's always been here. And again, that's yeah. sort of a misnomer, too. I mean, like the what we call the Catholic Church is not what the church in Rome in the second century AD looked like. Um, and sometimes there's a little bit of bait and switch where you, you know, uh, it sounds like an institutional church now will say, well, we've always been this way. Well, no, there've been a lot of changes over the years. And, you know, serious point earlier about that line of Phyllis Tickles about the garage sale the church has every 500 years. The first one in, in the year 500 or so is uh, the, the church of AD 500 when Pope what Gregory the Great is, is on the papal throne. The first century Christians would have said, what do you mean there's a throne? <laughs> Why would there be a throne? We're supposed to be servants. Why None of that looks like Jesus, right? Um, and so a, a group can say, well, we've kept the same letterhead for 2,000 years, and that's why we're the same, that even that's a little bit disingenuous. So uh, yeah, both sides can play that game. To me, it seems particularly egregious when the group that clearly is a breakaway group goes like, and we're really the ones who've been always the same. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not that one is the same and the other is different so much as the issues keep changing. Because that breakaway group then makes it sound almost like even the disciples, right, right, you know, right. aren't saved, and right. the the early church in the Book of Acts wasn't saved because right. if if we didn't figure out this Jesus thing until right sixteen hundred years later, like right, yeah, right. So, yeah, it, I get what you're saying. Like that's definitely a little bit more egregious on that end because you're like. Well, it, it's taken us 1,600 years, but we finally figured out Jesus. Right, right, right. And there's a certain arrogance there of nobody knew yeah. the truth until we finally figured it out. It, it is my great hope that everyone who belongs to the Christian, Christian church is able to find a community that they feel like, yes, this is right. Like, this mm-hmm. is like good theology, good way to have relationship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that you're able to find that group. But it's also my hope that we're able to recognize that the church is made up of people Mm -hmm. and we fail and we sin and we get things wrong. And the best we can do is keep trying to get it right, to keep trying to make that next right step, as um, Princess Anna from Frozen 2 reminds (laughs) us, Um, you know, that we just keep trying to get it right, even when we then get it wrong trying to correct our mistakes and to repent um Mm -hmm. but also to recognize that we are human and that we are not infallible that only god is perfect and we just try to follow god's example the best we can yeah i think you raise a really good point that that helps reframe this for me is that even though we've talked about how movements sometimes decide they need to become institutions that there are probably also times in history where what was needed was just a movement that could exist for a while, be a course correction, and then didn't have to result in a separate institution. And sometimes we've not been going to acknowledging that. So as I, as I look at our story as, as Lutherans in the tradition I come from, man, it would have been really amazing if in that moment they would have said, hey, Brother Martin's got some good ideas. We should talk about going back to what the scriptures say and reading the original sources and maybe making our decisions based on that rather than what a uh, Pope has said. 
And that wouldn't have had to require a split. There could have been a, yeah, we all need this course correction. And similarly, uh, when, I, when I look at the story of John Wesley and the movement mm-hmm. that becomes Methodism, man, wouldn't it be great if everybody who's in an institutional church that can become so ossified and cold and dead has something that shakes them up and reminds them, how do you live out your faith day by day? That's fantastic. That didn't need to be only these people who will call themselves Methodists care about yeah. living out their faith with their hearts strangely warmed. Man, we should all have been there. Um, and that while I can't go back in time and change those things, that may be a way that we appreciate and see the value in the way those movements continue today in different traditions. And to say, we need those voices from different perspectives. And sometimes what they bring to the conversation helps any one of us or helps us in the different moments that we're in. So maybe it could be helpful to abandon the idea of there's all these choices. You should spend your life finding the one right, correct denomination. And instead to say, for the challenges that we're facing in this moment in time, how do I need to listen to the voices that come out of Rome, the voices that come out of Orthodoxy, the voices that come out of Wesleyanism, voices that come out of the peace traditions, the voices that come from, um, you know, ancient, ancient, ancient African churches that trace their lineage back to the Queen of Sheba. Um, and that there are voices that are still worth listening to, even if they're not mine um, or the one that I come from. And that that can be a helpful way rather than, the goal of Christianity now is to find the one right group and then destroy all the others. So, man, we've laid off an awful lot of ground uh, to cover in future episodes. And hopefully for folks who are listening, sort of tipped our hand that this series, we don't intend it to be all, uh, here's why any one of our denominations is the only one right answer, but how do we live in both the good and the bad of uh, Christian groups that that uh, form their own institutions. Um, but we do want to invite you to join us next time and in these further episodes, keep looking at why we bother with this structure in denominational life in, in Christianity. Join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. This is